So, it gives me very, very pleasure to introduce this evening uh, Valérie Poirier, mm -hmm. who's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Guelph and a member of the Montreal History Group. Uh, she specialises in the social, environmental and urban history of 20th century Quebec. She recently completed a PhD in history uh, at the University of Quebec at Montreal, UQAM, in which she examined how the car came to be perceived as an environmental risk in Montreal during the long 1960s. Uh, and with uh, Stéphane Sabard, also at UQAM, she recently co-edited a special issue of the Bulletin d'Histoire Politique uh, on environmental activism in Quebec, in which she also uh, published an article focusing on the citizen-led opposition to the construction of the Ville-Marie Expressway in Montreal in the early 1970s. Her current research explores the new ways of conceptualizing noise in the after-war period from 1945 to 1980, and how noise was gradually conceptualized as the fourth type of pollution following water, air, and soil pollution. So uh, please welcome uh, Valerie Poirier. Thank you, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for having me, because even with the rain, it's been really great to visit London for the first time, so I'm really happy to be here. Uh, so as you said, my conference today is based on my PhD thesis. And to briefly summarize my research project, I would say that it focused, as you said, on the process by which the car came to be seen as a risk for the health and the environment in the 1960s and the 70s in Montreal. Of course, most people today know that cars pollute. But not so long ago, this idea was new and even disruptive for certain people. Of course, the criticisms and the mobilizations against car pollution never became a mass movement, but it was nonetheless a novelty at that time, and it was a sharp break with the dominant perception of the car as a strong symbol of freedom, prosperity, and progress. So the main objective of, uh, with my thesis was to prove that the car did really become a criticized object for its environmental impact. But I also wanted to understand how and why it happened who participated in that project and in what ways. But since my thesis is 500 page long and that we don't really have all night, <laughs> I will focus here only on selected aspects of my research. And I have to warn you that my English is not perfect, so um, you'll have to be patient because most of the time I'll just stick to my text and I'm really sorry about that. But um, if I really don't express myself clearly, just raise your hand and I'm sure we can figure it out. Okay. So first, as all research worthy of that name, I will start with a little bit of theory. More specifically, I want to say a few words about the concept of risk, uh, which is not in the title of my paper today. I don't know why it usually is, but uh, the risk is really at, this, at the center of my research. Uh, the idea of risk can be very loosely defined as something in the future you want to prevent from happening, like accidents or disease. Since about three decades, this concept has generated multiple theories in social sciences. My use of the concept is mostly informed by the cultural theory of risk, 
which is conceptualized by anthropologist Mary Douglas. The main idea of this theory is um, that risk is a social construction, which means that the perception of what is considered risky changes depending on factors like technological developments or scientific findings, but also depending on cultural and social values and beliefs. So this theory is not really interested in determining if risks are real or not. It examines the changing perception of risks and the selection and politicization of primary risks in a given society. It is also interested in the different ways in which social groups use the risk. Douglas argues, for example, uh, that, the behavior, that the behaviors people show when confronted to a risk derive from the belonging to a social group and show the willingness of this group either to maintain the established order or to provoke changes so that the society adapts to a future full of threats. So my use of this theoretical framework enabled me to distinguish three different social groups who, with their actions and their discourse, participated in the construction of the car as a health and an environmental risk. So those actors are yeah, okay. uh, those actors are the governmental experts, non-governmental or academic experts, and environmental groups. And I want to highlight here that all of them envisioned the risk of car pollution differently. Each of their visions was anchored in and shaped by their own knowledge, rationality, value systems, objective, and the constraints associated with their workplace. Their respective belonging also shaped their attitude towards risks. And each one of these groups of social actors tried to promote and legitimate their own vision of this, risks, of this risk and how to control it. So uh, my main objective here is not only to explore how the, the car became a risk for some people, but also to highlight the fact that different visions of this risk coexisted and were politicized at the same time. So let's start with the first group of social actors, which is composed of municipal experts in Montreal. There are two essential aspects of um, uh, two essential aspects central to the profile of the Montreal public service experts that can help us understand how they contributed to the identification and the conceptualization of, of the risk of car pollution. The first one is that within the Department of Health, the expertise concerning air pollution and eventually car pollution was mostly carried by doctors and engineers, two types of experts who benefited from a great legitimacy and authority in society. These experts corresponded to the post-World War II typical expert figure, which was masculine, logic, technocratic, and authoritarian. While some of them were not specialized in the field of atmospheric pollution, their training in hygiene and public health, their implication in North American and European networks, and their position inside the Department of Health provided them with the necessary legitimacy to embody scientific <coughs> credibility on that matter. And the second aspect I want to underline is that these men were not only experts, but they were also governmental, uh, governmental officials. And in this regard, they were subjected to different political, financial, logistic, and efficiency constraints. On the one hand, as we will see, they recognized car pollution as an important health issue. But on the other hand, they articulated their discourse and their claims regarding air pollution 
in a cautious and bureaucratic language, which avoided alarmist statements that might be inconvenient for the government and they minimized the scope of the problem. They didn't question the economic and political system which enabled cars to pollute, and they rarely criticized publicly the power structures in which they worked. Um, and finally, they also generally put forward a narrow view of the car pollution problem, and they looked for concrete, accessible, and inexpensive solutions that didn't question the existing social, economic, and political order. So when and why did the first concern about car pollution emerge? In the municipal administration, the emergence of the of the risk of this risk, I'm sorry, it needs to be understood in the bigger context of the battle against air pollution. During the first half of the 20th century, the municipal authorities and experts were mostly concerned with smoke. But after 1950, the battle against air pollution changed in nature and changed targets. Air pollution was more and more associated with various contaminants with potentially, potentially harmful effects for the population's health sometimes colorless or odorless, like carbon monoxide. During the 1950s and the 60s, the echo of studies conducted in the United States, which confirmed the contribution of cars to air pollution, also influenced the Montreal municipal experts and gave them a reason to focus more and more on cars. With the number, with the number of cars constantly growing in the city, and uh, we can see the number right here, it also became harder for them not to recognize the car as a source of air pollution. Thus, in the middle of the 1960s, the car became, for the municipal experts, one of the three main factors of air pollution in the city, along with heating during the winter and waste incineration. In 1965, the arrival of Dr. Roland Amquin as head of the Department of Health marked a turning point as their perception of the car's environmental impact developed remarkably. In 1968, Lampkin declared in the health bulletin of the city of Montreal that with air pollution, and I quote, the enemy is the automobile and it is against this vehicle that we should, that we should struggle. During its four years as director of the Department of Health, Lampkin shared this opinion numerous times in the media. While he focused on air pollution most of the time, part of his discourse were also concerned with the misuse of cars in the city, which prevented maximization of urban space, limited traffic fluidity, and represented inefficient transportation of the population. In this regard, Lamkin's discourse on car pollution must be understood in link with his concerns as a municipal official, official for the effective fun functioning of the city. The Department of, of Health interest in car pollution peaked in, the, in 1969 with the release of a report on pollution by carbon monoxide in Montreal. The authors of the report, including doctors, engineers, but also chemists, drew on international knowledge circulating on car pollution, as well as on their own scientific knowledge based on statistics they collected by a net, with a network of 22-something stations in Montreal, and with a mobile station and a mobile laboratory, to conclude that cars was a threat, were a threat to the health of Montrealers. More specifically, the report proved that the levels of carbon monoxide, monoxide found in busy streets, major intersections, or on highway, 
reached the levels where scientists detected vision and hearing problems as well as brain function, problem, brain function troubles. In the following years, more reports on different air pollutants were released, and, each one of, and in each one of them singled out the car as being one of the major contributors to these pollutants levels increase in the city. These experts were not only concerned with the direct effect of car pollution on health, but also with the unknown effects of long-term long exposure to small doses of carbon monoxide. Even if the authors of the reports admitted that the scale of the unknown data prevented them from drawing firm conclusions on the chronic or indirect effects of car pollution, they still suggested that they could be much larger and serious than what was proven so far and could include various pulmonary, pulmonary and heart conditions and diseases. These conclusions came with three main recommendations to control and reduce this risk. So the first one called for the intensification of research on air pollution. The municipal experts also asked for ambient air quality standards and for emission norms that would be applied to cars and plants. The second set of recommendations focused on the improvement of traffic fluidity through measures such as the construction of bypass roads or the synchronization of traffic lights. Those measures aim to reduce the frequency of acceleration and deceleration phases during which the motor vehicles, motor vehicles produce much more pollutants. But they were also intended to prevent the paralysis in urban circulation, which reminds us of the experts' concerns towards efficiency. And the last and most important recommendation is to install pollution control devices on cars. According to engineer Jean-Marie and Dr. Roland Lamquin, those devices were the most efficient way to reduce carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons, and lead emissions by cars, and they also represented the main recommendation made by experts in the, in the, in the United States and elsewhere in Canada. So on the whole, we can see that these, suggestion, these solutions suggested by the municipal experts highlight the political, economic, and efficiency constraints coming from the workplace. Indeed, they suggested technical and technological solutions that didn't contest the dominance of the car in the city. Furthermore, they didn't question the economic and political structures that encouraged this dominance and caused car pollution, nor did they target the frantic quest for progress on which modern society is based. The attitude of the municipal experts toward this risk, the risk of car pollution, is hardly surprising if we refer to the cultural theory of risk. According to Mary Douglas, those experts came to be, can be seen as being part of a social group close to the central institutions in society, and subscribing to a bureaucratic culture whose values and beliefs are first shaped by a desire and a commitment to maintain the power and control of those institutions on the whole society. So it is not surprising then that the municipal experts were not very inclined to question profound societal choices that are at the source of the car's environmental risks to rather focus on control methods that affected very little the established orders. Nonetheless, with the data they collected, their reports on car pollutants, their media appearances, and their recommendations they addressed to all three levels of government, 
Their contribution to the identification and the definition of risk it was very important, and the fact that their scientific and technical expertise was granted with a privileged authority contributed to legitimize this vision of their vision of this risk. Every expert in Montreal did not share this narrow view of car pollution. In fact, as soon as, soon as I started to study the, the discourse of different experts, I realized quickly that the expertise regarding car pollution was far from being limited to the public service. So I adopted the label non-governmental experts to refer to another expert figure that had a different profile and that put forward another vision of this risk. Uh, the presence of those non-governmental experts in Montreal is not surprising. It echoes an international trend that sees experts taking a public stand and questioning the scientific and technological progress that defined the whole Western culture since the Second World War. Those experts all adopted their own perspective to address various environmental issues, but, but most of them reflected on the same themes, like human arrogance towards nature, the urgency to act against environmental degradation, the questioning of scientific and technological abuse, the domination of capitalist values and logic, and the improvement of participatory democracy mechanisms. In Montreal, these non-governmental experts were essentially working within universities. Like the experts working for the government, they were mostly engineers and doctors, but also meteorologists, and it was exclusively a masculine expertise. Very vocal and active in the media, they use their authority and their status as experts more than actual work results in order to make statements about different issues. Working in a less restrictive environment than their governmental counterparts, they were granted with a relative freedom of action and speech, which had great repercussions on their discourse concerning car pollution, as we can see if we look more closely at the features of this discourse. Indeed, some of its first features are the alarmist language they use and the great concern they, they show for the future. Concerning air pollution, local media frequently relayed expert statements predicting, for example, that it was only a question of time before urban population had to wear gas masks to go to work, or even that hum the human race would be extinguished by the year 2000, which obviously didn't happen. Concerning the car more specifically, most of these experts considered it was the biggest culprit in terms of air pollution. In a 1966 Montreal newspaper article entitled Choice Between Automobile and Survival, an American meteorologist questioned the use of cars and suggested that the day North American people would be forced to ban them from, to ban them from cities in order to survive was not so far. One of the most pessimist critiques concerning the car came from Fred Nelman. For the engineer, who was also a professor at, at Sir George William University, which became Concordia University, the car was not only a source of air pollution, it was also a powerful symbol that channeled all the environmental, social, and economic consequences of an abusive use of technology that would eventually plunge humanity into a crisis if its dependence on cars is not reconsidered. Unlike the public service experts, these academic experts did not use a bureaucratic and prudent language in their evaluation of the car's environmental risk. 
This gap can also be seen in the diagnosis the two types of experts made. While both of them identified the same direct and indirect effects of car, pollutions on, of car pollution on health, like vision and hearing problems or slow reflexes, the non-governmental experts were much likelier to link these effects with severe affections or complications like cancer or even death. Another specific feature of the academic, academic experts' discourse on car pollution was that they were very critical of the government and institutions that allowed this pollution and they held them responsible for it. First of all, they criticized the inaction of the government. Dr. David Bates, a doctor and professor at McGill University, deplored the unwillingness of the federal government to engage action on this issue, while Nillman said that the administrative structures set up by the government to study air pollution only generated inefficient and costly bureaucracies. Another strand of criticisms addressed to the governments concerned the dominance of the economic interest in political decisions. According to Nelman, the problem was not only their profit-driven decisions, but also the great proximity between governments and large industries, such as the automotive industry, who controlled the development of cities and were therefore responsible for pollution, car traffic, dust, noise and poverty. And finally, another complaint from these experts was specifically addressed to the city of Montreal and concerned its lack of transparency regarding pollution data. In this regard, Bates and Nelman accused the municipal authorities to keep secret the data on car pollution in order to prevent alerting public opinion. This pollution cover-up operation was, as Nelman put it, and I quote, typical of the completely arrogant and paternalistic attitude governments show, when the, show the public when pollution is involved. And Bates shared the same opinion. In keeping, in keeping pollution statistics a secret, he said, the city is denying fundamental human rights. People have at least the right to know what they're breeding, unquote. So we can see that unlike the public service experts, this, the critical discourse of, academic, of the academic experts regarding the environmental risk of car pollution was linked to larger social, economic, and ur urban and democratic issues and choices. And these experts suggested three measures to control car pollution. The first one was to rethink the dominance of cars in the city, and this meant reducing the number of cars, of cars allowed downtown, and improve public transit systems, but also to plan, to plan cities so that the population would become less de car dependent. Their second solution was to reinforce the social and professional responsibility of experts and to increase their reflexivity on their own work. According to Nelman and Dr. Richard Nelson, who worked at the Notre Dame Hospital, the experts in general needed to be responsible for the unforeseen social and environmental consequences of the technology and the progress they create. And finally, the third measure was to educate the citizens. And to do so, they were very active on the in the media and the public scene. For example, uh, Dr. Bates wrote a book called A Citizen's Guide to Air Pollution, and two other experts, Tommy Le Sautard and Marcel Chaput, also wrote a book entitled Dossier Pollution. Both Nelman and Dr. Nelson founded their own group 
to make the public aware of the consequences of technology and science and to fight pollution. In doing so, the experts wanted to, well, these experts wanted to encourage the citizens to mobilize because they represented, according to the non-governmental experts, the only political force capable of pressuring the governments into action. As such, these experts also encourage the citizens' participation in decision-making uh, processes. Sorry. So we can see that the academic experts considered the risk of car pollution as a social problem that called for a political solution. In suggesting a political handling of this risk, they also initiated its politicization, a process that was reinforced by the environmental groups during the 1970s. And by referring once again to the cultural theory of risk, we can see that the non-governmental experts adopted an alarmist attitude towards the risks of car pollution, an attitude that is typical of social groups that embrace, according to Mary Douglas, an egalitarian or sectarian culture. These groups essentially hold the governments and central institutions responsible for the risk in the society in general, and they want to provoke change, changes in the, in the established social order so that society can adapt and face future threats. The third group of social actors that I study, the environmental groups, belonged broadly to the same culture as the non-governmental experts and demonstrated a similar attitude towards the risk of car pollution. Yet the environmental groups put forward a vision of car pollution of their own, grounded in their own values, objectives, and knowledge. The presence of environmental groups in Montreal needs to be understood in the wider context of the rise of new social movements emerging in the 1960s and the 1970s. These movements insisted on post-materialist values and needs, defined with quality of life issues and with an emphasis on personal and political freedom, environmental protection, openness to, new, openness to new ideas, and a caring society. These post-materialist values were instrumental in the emergence of a new environmental sensibility. Along with the developments associated with advanced modernity in the period following World War II, such as mass consumption and mega-projects, those values created a new social need regarding the quality of the environment. This new awareness led to the formation of many environmental groups across Canada that addressed the different issues such as the quality of water, of air, and of the urban environment. And because the environmental impacts of cars overlap with many of those issues, the car soon beca became an important target among these groups and also a symbol of urban pollution. In Montreal, I concentrated my attention on five groups who developed a strong anti-car discourse, and those groups are the Society, La Société pour vaincre la pollution, which I call SVP, uh, the Society to Overcome Pollution, STOP, Save Montreal, Citizens on Cycle, and La Fédération québécoise du cyclotourisme. Like the two types of experts we have seen, these five groups all tried to, wear, to raise awareness publicly concerning the car's impacts on health and on the environment. But in comparison to the experts that used their status and the authority of science to present a credible discourse on car pollution, the groups relied on a hybrid knowledge. On the one hand, the groups 
and more specifically the SVP and STOP, which are the two most emblematic groups of the environmental movement in Quebec, tried to gain legitimacy by grounding their discourse in scientific knowledge. For example, numerous members or sympathizers of the two groups were provided with a scientific training and thus embodied the authority of science because they had limited means to produce new data on car pollution. The two groups also relied heavily on the data and statistics provided by the Department of Health of the city of Montreal. But on the other hand, these groups' discourse was also anchored in another type of expertise rooted in their intimate knowledge of the city's environment and their day-to-day -day involvement in its problems. Their daily experience of the city was, according to these groups, a valuable source of knowledge, even maybe more relevant than the knowledge held by experts, because it was anchored in the reality of the city. In opposing their expertise to that of bureaucrats, they tried to legitimate their local knowledge, but also to question the expertise of the government. And in doing so, they contested the unilateral definition imposed by the governments of what constituted an expertise on, on environmental issues, and they tried to broaden this definition in order to include the citizens' views. So building on their hybrid knowledge, the environmental groups formulated two major types of criticisms concerning the car's environmental risk. Unsurprisingly, the first one was that the car was the main culprit for air pollution in the city. And um, a member of the SVP drew the cartoon here to illustrate very clearly this criticism. The second environmental criticism was that the car led to the destruction of the urban environment. Comparing the car to a creeping cancer, the conservationist group Save Montreal, along with other groups, argued that it was unacceptable to have that many people evicted from downtown and green spaces or historic buildings sacrificed to make way for new roads, highways, and parking lots. So this is a car cartoon that was published um, on the front page of the Bulletin of, uh, the Bulletin of Save Montreal in 1976, and it gives an image of Montreal 10 years later, so in 1986. Um, and for those of you who have been in Montreal or know Montreal, there's only one hill in Montreal, it's the Mont Royal, and there's a cross at its summit. So the cross is right there. So it gives an image of really the city completely submerged by highways. Those two environmental criticisms were far from being the only ones uh, that the environmental groups addressed to the car. Indeed, their discourse also conveyed a strong social component, and this can be explained by different factors. First, by the fact that these groups belong to a larger era of political and social protest and movements. By protesting side by side, they established order, and by sharing similar values and sometimes also network of activists. These social movements shared a sense of struggle against oppression, contributed to the mixing of their ideas and values, even though they maintained substantial differences in their origins, goals, and objectives, and ideologies. Nevertheless, the environmental groups in, in Montreal were deeply influenced by other local and international struggles happening at the same time, like feminism, socialism, or citizen activism. And second, we also need to consider the group's understanding of what constituted the environment, a concept whose definition varies greatly in time and space. 
in the case of the environmental groups in Montreal in the 1970s. Their comprehension of the, envir of the environment included, of course, the physical landscape and its transformations, but it also encompassed a social dimension. Their use of the term environment thus also referred to the social-cultural processes that shape the environment, as well as to uh, power relations that derived from it. As a result, the five groups articulated the, their environmental criticisms regarding car pollution to larger social values and issues, and to other struggles fought by different social movements at the same time. And for example, they considered the car as a source of social, economic, and environmental inequalities in the city. And the slide here illustrates uh, the mobilization against the urban freeway in Montreal uh, that would have destroyed more than 2,000 dwellings in the working-class francophone neighborhood of Hochelaga Maisonneuve. They also envisioned the car as an object that reinforced the oppression of women in society. And finally, they saw the car as a symbol of the destructive nature of capitalism. So it is clear that the environmental groups didn't envision the risk of car pollution as a narrow problem that required, that required technical or technological solutions. Like the two types of experts, they demanded better control measures from governments, such as the establishment of mandatory emission standards for cars and ambient air quality standards. They also suggested reducing car pollution by encouraging other modes of transportation and better urban planning, which, will, which would help reduce car dependence. But the main solution they suggested was to politicize the environmental risk of car pollution with the objective of forcing the governments to act. To do so, the, the environmental groups used different tactics. With their public actions, like the Diane we see here, uh, they tried to rally and mobilize public opinion to their cause, thus putting external pressure on the government. They also collaborated with political parties to have them include their points of view on the urban environment and cars in their programs. And when, it was, when it was possible, they also participated in political mechanisms. For example, they took part in public consultation on some occasions and submitted briefs to support their claims. But faced with the very limited nature of these opportunities to speak up and be heard by political authorities, environmental groups mostly focused on the need to implement a participatory democracy or, at least, to ensure the citizens' right to participate in decisions that affected them daily so that they can promote their vision of the environment. For these groups, then, the most effective way to control and reduce environmental risks, such as car pollution, was to rethink the relation between the state and the citizens. So as we can see, the car was identified and conceptualized as a risk because of its impact on health and on the environment during the 1960s and the 70s. But the construction of this risk was far from being a uniform process. Governmental experts, academic experts, and environmental groups all promoted their own vision of this risk and suggested very different solutions to control or reduce it. Each of their vision was anchored in their knowledge and shaped by their values, rationality, or the constraints associated with their workplace. But despite the efforts of those groups, the environmental impacts of CAR never became a primary risk in the eyes of the government, who have been very slow to act on that matter. Only the federal government addressed this risk, and the measures adopted were very 
very limited. For example, Ottawa adopted national air quality objectives in 1970, but those were only symbolical, meaning that no province was forced to reach them. A second example is the adoption of emission standards that required the installation of catalytic converters on new cars. But because of economic concerns and probably a desire not to alienate the automotive and oil industries, the federal government adopted much less severe norms than did the United States and waited until the end of the 1980s to lower the acceptable standards. This means that in 1987, Canadian cars were producing seven times the amount of pollutants the U.S. car did. These measures essentially consisted in technological fix and absolutely did not question the dominance of cars in the society and the economic and political system that fueled the consumption of cars, nor did it address the social consequences of cars more broadly. The result was that since the 1970s, despite the fact that the car was generally recognized as a risk because of its environmental impacts, the number of cars in Montreal and in Canada continued to rise and the car did not stop to dominate urban, to dominate urban planning as it still does today. So several factors can explain why the governments never really addressed the risk of car pollution and why it was never priority for them. The lack of political will is one of those factors, as is a confusion regarding what level of government was responsible for the environment and pollution. In 1966, a federal provincial conference entitled Pollution in its Environment was set up to establish more clearly who was responsible of what in terms of pollution and environment. Technically, it was decided that pollution was a provincial responsibility since it was considered as a health issue and health was a provincial matter. But in the case of car pollution, a certain level of confusion remained. Since it was a national matter, it was a mobile source of pollution and it had to do with different departments such as health, but also transport and environment. At the end of the 1960s and during the 70s, it seemed that no level, no level of government was in a position of taking the leadership in the battle against car pollution. The federal government refused to bypass the province's responsibilities and only accepted to establish uniform national goals and guidelines, leaving open the question of how or even whether those goals would be achieved. During the 1970s, the Quebec government took absolutely no action regarding car pollution claiming it didn't have the expertise to do so and that this risk was essentially limited to urban areas. As for the Montreal Municipal Administration, despite its expertise concerning air pollution, its legal scope of action was limited to stationary sources of atmospheric pollution, like plants. Overall, it is fairly obvious that this complicated situation concerning the division of competences provided more of a convenient excuse for delay and for inaction from all levels of governments on the question of, of car pollution. Another factor we can mention to explain why the, government, why the government did not select car pollution as a primary risk is the general prioritization of economic concerns over environmental issues, especially in the context of the oil crisis after 1973. While pollution was certainly a bandwagon for everyone in 1970, including the governments, 
By 1973, and for the rest of the decade, economic issues were at the top of the priorities and pollution was consistently less present on the public scene. As for the society in general, different reasons can explain why the car remains so popular despite its environmental risks. First, we can point to the power of the car as a symbol of freedom, prosperity, and progress, and to the fact that it was deeply entrenched in the value system. We can also point to the limits of environmental consciousness, to the lack of commitment to the environmental cause, or to the failure to change individual behavior. As Ivan Makar, which is an environmental activist, uh, noted in 1980, and I quote, Few of us are willing to do without private cars and 20, 21 degrees C comfort. Changes in lifestyle must come from the grassroots. Most of all, though, I think that what, explain, what explains best the persistence of the car is the dependence of the population to a mode of transportation that completely reshaped the economy and that was central to the way uh, transportation systems and cities were planned and developed since several decades the development of suburbs, the multiplication of highways and urban sprawls, uh, urban sprawl. All those transformations of the built environment have made the car useful and most of all necessary. Accordingly, it was difficult, unattractive and very expensive for the population to change its habits and for the government to change the social, economic and political structures to reduce car dependence. So to conclude, we have to concede that despite the efforts of governmental experts, academic experts, and the environmental groups to identify, conceptualize, and politicize the risk of car pollution, it proved extremely difficult for them to bring about effective changes. Yet I would argue that the process of construction of this, of this risk is not a total failure. I actually think it is still important and, and interesting to study it because it represents an early attempt to politicize a new vision of Montreal that addressed different issues important to a growing number of Montrealers, like, of course, car pollution, but also the environment in general, urban planning, health inequalities, and the participation of citizens to decision-making processes. If some of the ideas suggested by the three groups of actors to control and reduce the, the risk of car pollution seemed somewhat marginal and even radical in the 1970s, they eventually became mainstream. Some of them were adopted, such as anti-pollution devices on cars or better emission standards. And some of them are still vividly discussed today in almost the exact same terms. It is the case with measures that would reduce the number of cars in the city, that encourages public transit to minimize car pollution, and promotes the bicycle as a mode of transport. And we can see on the slide an example um, of the ideas promoted by the environmental groups to renew a major commercial street in Montreal in 1978 and in 2015, uh, with both they have large sidewalks to encourage walking, um, and both are trying to give the priority to transit instead of cars. So it is still very accurate today. So ultimately, we can say that the municipal experts, the non-governmental experts, and the environmental groups, by addressing the risk of car pollution, helped to lay the foundations for a discussion that led to important changes in Montreal's urban environment, and that would surely continue to do so. Thank you.
come today. Thank you. Thank you.